Our psalm that we're going to read today as we come back to our Psalms for the Summertime series is Psalm 27. That's found on page, I think it's 862 in your pew Bibles. And, uh, but before, so you may turn there, but before we open it and read it, let's do as we have been doing for this entire series. Pray this prayer for illumination, this responsive prayer that's printed in your liturgies. And these words too, as we open ourselves to God's word, come from the Psalms. Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your book. For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Lord, open my heart that your truth would be my joy and my delight. For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Lord, open my mind that you would show me the way to live. For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light on my path. Guide me by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please turn with me to Psalm 27. And uh, before we read it, let me remind you where we've been so far in this series. Uh, You had a week off last week, so let me give you a recap. We started at the beginning, the same place the Psalms start, with Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 uh, was a really great place to start. It was a really clear description of the ultimate truth of what happens with righteousness and wickedness in this world. And Psalm 1 said, the righteous are like trees planted by streams of water who always bear fruit in season, whereas the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. It's a really bright, clear explanation of the ultimate truth of wickedness and righteousness in this world. And reading Psalm 1 is a little bit like... uh, standing on a hillside on a perfectly clear day where you can see for miles and the sunshine of God is standing, shining on your face. Um, it's lovely and it's clear. But then for the next three psalms, we went into stormier weather where things were not quite so clear as Psalm 1. The lament of Psalm 74. Uh, the despair of Psalm 88. And then uh, two weeks ago, Chad preached on confession, right? Psalm 32, our sinfulness and God's forgiveness. Now, those were stormier places. They weren't so morally clear as Psalm 1, but the light of God was in those places too, especially through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now our sermon series takes another turn. And really, all the rest of the sermons in this series, and there are six more left, only six weeks left in your summer, Those six sermons will be looking at psalms that mention trouble, but really psalms that anchor us in the midst of this trouble. Psalms that when we read them, the Holy Spirit is using them to anchor us in habits of mind and habits of heart that help us to stand in our trouble and be anchored and faithful and loving people in this world. That's the next six. And all of them will be a little bit different. They'll teach us slightly different things. The Spirit will do different things to anchor us in each of these psalms. So today's psalm is Psalm 27, and as I read it, uh, you'll notice that uh, there's a part of it in the middle, which almost sounds like a psalm of lament. The psalmist is crying out, but really the overall tone of the psalm is not lament. Much stronger than the lament You hear a note of happiness and joy and hopefulness. And really, that lament in the middle is completely bracketed by this hope and this joy. And in this hope and joy, the Spirit is anchoring the psalmist, and hopefully he'll be anchoring us too 
in habits that will help us stand and be people of faith. Let's listen to this psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high on a rock. Then my head will be exalted above my enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, O Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger, for you have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I will remain confident of this. I will seek the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I said just before I read that psalm that you can hear a middle section which sounds almost like lament in that psalm. I think you all heard that. But I also said that stronger than the voice of that lament, you hear the voice of hope and the voice of joy. And you sense that this psalm is something being used by the Holy Spirit to ground us in faith in the face of our troubles. How does the psalmist do that? How does this psalm, how does the Holy Spirit use this psalm to ground us in the face of our troubles, to ground the psalmist in the face of his troubles. Well, let's start by looking at the trouble that the psalmist faced. What, what is exactly the trouble that the psalmist is facing in this psalm? It's actually not all that easy to tell precisely, um, but I think the closest you get to a specific description of the trouble is in verse 12, where the psalmist says, false witnesses are breathing out malicious threats against me. So the psalmist has some people who really, really don't like him. And those people are telling lies about him. And those lies go beyond just untruths about his life. They're malicious statements that seek his demise. They seek to harm him. And he's understandably upset about that. That is the psalmist's trouble. But now the more interesting question and the central question, what does Psalm 27 do? to anchor the psalmist in the midst of his trouble. And what might Psalm 27 be doing for you to anchor you in the midst of your trouble? Well, one of the really wonderful things about Psalm 27 is how nuanced it is when it understands the way that when we're under pressure, when we're in the midst of struggle, 
the different fronts on which we are assaulted. When we're in trouble, we are assaulted on multiple fronts, and at least two fronts. And this psalm understands both those fronts. Whenever we're in struggle, we have two things, two threats that we have to deal with, and this psalm understands them both. What are these two fronts and two threats? Well, the first one's really obvious for the psalmist. The most obvious threat is a physical one for him. He's got these people in the world who are breathing out violence against him, breathing out malicious threats, and are threatening his life. So he's worried about his own physical health, and he's worried about the physical health of his family, which any of us would be if people were making public threats about us. And he's clearly relying on the Lord to protect him against those public threats. In the day of the trouble, the Lord will keep me safe in his dwelling. Okay? So there's a note in that psalm which talks about the physical threats that this man faces, and he's looking to God to protect him against those physical threats. I think that's really obvious that that's one of the fronts that threatens us when we're in a time of struggle. But if you read carefully, the psalmist is worried about much more than his physical well-being. Look at verse 12. There the psalmist prays, Lord, do not give me over to the desire of my foes. That is an interesting prayer. Do not give me over to the desire of my foes. And why didn't he just pray, don't give me over to my foes? What's different about being given over to your foes versus being given over to the desire of your foes? The Hebrew word for desire is the word nefesh. Do not give me over to the nefesh of my foes. That is a huge Hebrew word in the Old Testament. How can you understand what nefesh means? It often, most often gets translated as soul or life if you're in our pew Bibles. And if I had to define what a nefesh was, a nefesh is both your body and your soul in its animated state, in its directed state. So your nefesh is your body and your soul and its passions and its directions. Your nefesh is your spirit that animates your whole life and the direction you want to go, okay? So everyone is a nefesh. It's not quite the same as your soul. Everyone is a nefesh. It's just who you are and where you're aimed. Psalmist is a nefesh and his foes have a nefesh. His foes have desires and a spirit and are aimed in a certain point. So that prayer, do not give me over to the desire of my foes, is not so much a prayer for physical safety as a prayer that for moral and spiritual safety. The psalmist isn't worried that his enemies will kill him in that prayer. He's worried that his enemies will infect him. Do not give me over to the desire of my foes. Do not let the desires of my foes become my desires. Do not let their passions become my passions. Do not let their methods become my methods. He's worried that instead of his life being animated by the breath of God's spirit, he will become like his foes and he will be breathing, instead of God's spirit, he will be breathing out violence. He will be breathing out threats. That prayer is not so much a prayer for physical safety as moral and spiritual safety. And if what I've said so far doesn't convince you of that second front that the psalmist is worried about, look at the verse right before it. Teach me your way, Lord, and keep me in a straight path because of my enemies. 
Anytime the psalmist or any person in scripture wants to be kept on a straight path, they're asking for something moral and spiritual. They're worried that somehow the work of their enemies will put him off the path. That's the second front that that faces all of us in our struggles. It's the spiritual moral front. All our troubles come at us in those two ways. When you lose your job, you face the financial struggles that come on with that. You face the table full of bills that you have to pay and not enough money to do it. That's front one, right? That's the physical struggle. But you also face the humiliation of losing your job, the shame, the disappointment. When you are struggling with chronic pain, you face the reality of that pain. You face the daily struggle of moving around. That's the first front. But you also face the sense of hopelessness, the sense of will this ever get better that can create bitterness. When you get older, you face the diminishments of age. You face the fact that your faculties aren't as sharp and you can't do what you used to do, front one. But you also face the possibility that you'll be frustrated, that you'll become bitter, that you'll become grouchy because people don't look at you the way they used to and rely on you the way you used to. Our troubles always face us on two fronts, the spiritual and the physical. Now, of course, these fronts are connected. I'm a little hesitant to say spiritual and physical here because it makes it sound like the body and soul are two separate distinct things. They're not. They are intertwined. Our spiritual life affects our physical life. Our physical life has an impact on our spiritual life as well. But we can distinguish them. We fight them in different ways. When you have cancer, you address the cancer on the first front, the physical front, with chemotherapy. But on the other side, on the other front, you address it with prayer and with a community of support and with scripture reading and with looking after your soul. Here's a question. Does the Bible make a judgment about which of these two fronts is more dangerous for us? Does Psalm 27 give you any sense of which of these two fronts are a greater threat or a greater danger for the psalmist? I think without question, it is the second front that Scripture holds up as the most dangerous, the one that we have to be most careful of. What good is it for a man, says Jesus, to save his life and yet lose his soul? What good is it for a man to win all the front one battles but to lose on front two? Don't be worried about those who can destroy the body Worry about those who can destroy both body and soul in hell, says Jesus. Worry about that second front. And in this psalm, while the psalmist is clearly concerned about his physical safety, the bulk of this psalm is dealing with his moral and his spiritual sense. This has something to teach us. In our current culture, in our current climate, there's lots of worry about the church losing its place in society that on the first front of things, we are shrinking. And it's great to see a full church here, right? But we all know that's the exception. Church membership is shrinking. We have more foes than we used to have. We might not be persecuted, but there's a lot more people coming against us. We feel the weight of that front one battle. 
and that's concerning, and we're all concerned about that. But I am much more worried about the second front dangers that attend to our diminishment. In these pressured times, I'm worried that we'll be turned over to the desire of our enemies, which could happen in multiple ways. We could be turned over to the desire of our enemies by letting their methods become our methods. That hate and anger and fear and raw force, the things that our enemies use become our means and our way. Or I'm also worried that we will simply capitulate to the moral and spiritual world of our enemies, that we will cease to be distinct morally and spiritually, that we will just blend in. Either of these two are ways in which we could be given over to the desires of our foes. So that's the worry of the psalmist. That's the battle of the psalmist. But as I said at the beginning, this psalm is not all about the trouble. It's not all about the battle. Ultimately, it's hopeful. Ultimately, the psalmist is talking about how he can stand in the middle of all this. How does the psalmist do it? What does the psalmist point to? What does the Holy Spirit point us to? Now, if you read the psalm carefully and listened carefully, you'll know that there's one specific thing that the psalmist is looking for that will help him in his troubles. What is that thing? What is the thing that the psalmist seeks to keep him steady amidst the battle? It is the face of the Lord. It's all through this psalm. He wants to see the face of God. One thing I ask, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. My heart says, seek his face. Your face, O Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me, O Lord. Lord, if I can see your face, says the psalmist, if I can see your face, I can get through this thing. If I can see your face, I know that I won't be given over to the desire of my foes. Not only does the psalmist want to see God's face, he also says there's a kind of a habit. He refers to a habit that he practices that helps him to see that face. A place where he can go where God's face is revealed to him. What is that place? What is that habit? It's the worship of God's people in the temple and in the tabernacle. It is in worship. The psalmist wants to worship so he can see God's face. He wants to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. He wants to go to the sacred tent where he will sing and make music to the Lord. He longs for the company of God's people in the tabernacle, in God's dwelling place, where he can sing and make music and be strengthened. It is in that place that God shows his face to him and he knows he'll be able to stand up against the desire of his foes. When we think about protecting ourselves from falling to the spirits of our age, Psalm 27 suggests, and the Holy Spirit suggests in Psalm 27, that the worship of God's people is a stronghold against the enemy. The worship of God's people keeps us from giving in to the desires of our foes. This is real. When we worship together, and this has happened for me as long as I've been alive, we sometimes hear, especially after a worship service that's really uplifting, people say to each other, oh, that was wonderful. I really feel fed by that. I really feel strengthened by that service. I feel lifted up. 
that's things that I think that, that hopefully all of you have said at least once or twice in your life, okay? And I was reflecting on that. What are people talking about? When they say they're being fed, when they said that they've received something in a worship service, what, what are they talking about? It's not really an intellectual statement. They're not really saying that they learned something. Now, hopefully you learned something in a sermon too. I hope there's some intellectual content. But when someone says they're fed, they usually don't just mean that. They mean something more than that. They're talking about some sort of engagement, some kind of encounter that fed their heart and soul. It happens all the time. could happen in the sermon, but it could just as easily happen in the last verse of the opening hymn when Larry opens up the organ and everybody sings really loud and it's wonderful. It could happen in the prayer confession in a time of silence where all of a sudden a room full of people goes completely still. It could happen in the physicality of this building where in the middle of the offertory suddenly the sun comes shining through this window and you feel a sense of peace. It could happen in a benediction where I raise my hand and say the words that I say all the time and somehow for you all of a sudden it really feels like God is blessing you. When we feel ourselves being fed in those moments, when we feel the impact of those moments in any one of them or maybe all of them all together, God is turning his face towards us and smiling upon us. That thing that we say when we say we're being fed, it's the same thing the psalmist is saying in this psalm. We've seen God's face. The peace that passes understanding is guarding and keeping our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus our Lord. God turns his face towards us and it is good and it is just enough to get us through our stuff. I may not understand my troubles and I promise you I don't always understand all the things that some of you are going through. But if we see God's face in this place together, it is enough. One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Yes, absolutely. In 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy were planning to lead a civil rights march on Selma, Alabama. Now, I don't know, you probably don't remember your civil rights history so much. 1965, kind of in the middle of the struggle. Martin Luther King Jr. represented the nonviolent arm of the civil rights movement, right? He did not believe in violence. He wanted to use nonviolence because he thought it was Jesus' way. Well, there, by this time, there are lots of people who don't agree with him, all right? The Black Panthers start the next year. There are lots of other voices that say we need revolution, we need violence, this nonviolence thing is no good. And if I may editorialize on that, I would say that the people who are saying those things are a great example of people who have given themselves over to the desires of their foes, right? They're being violent with us, we gotta be violent with them, right? They're giving themselves over to the desires of their foes. King and Abernathy did not want to do that. They wanted nonviolence. So they're planning this march and, and they're trying to get their hearts and their souls ready for this march. 
And they know that they're going to face violence because just two weeks earlier there had been a march in Selma and they brought out the dogs and the water cannons and, and, and the billy clubs and it had been terribly violent. Fifty people had gone to the hospital. And they know they're going to face opposition again and they're trying to get their hearts ready. Guess what they do? They worship. The day before the march, they get together with God's people, they dwell in the house of the Lord and they worship. And guess what Bible text they use to put at the center of their worship? Psalm 27. The Lord is our light and our salvation. Of whom shall we be afraid? Lord, don't give us over to the desire of our enemies. Instead, let us see your face. The next day they walked through town and they were jeered and spit at. They were greeted with the N-word. But in the spirit of Psalm 27, they stayed strong and they did not give themselves over to the desires of their enemies. And I would say, that's a really great example of what seeing the face of God can do for all of us when we march out of this place and out into the storm. And God is doing the same thing here right now that he did in Selma, showing you his face, telling you that there's enough for you as you go out. It's the same thing he did in Jesus, right? Because of course, quintessentially it was in Jesus that God turned his face towards us. And Jesus went through everything that this psalmist did. People didn't just breathe out threats against him. They actually carried out threats against him. They nailed him to a cross, but Jesus, even at the end, did not give himself over to the desire of his foes, but stayed on the path of grace and truth and life. And in our worship, it is his face that we see. It is his spirit that is being placed in your hearts, and it is his voice that is saying to you, you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your psalms. Their honesty and their formative power Father, we pray that the words of Psalm 27, through the working of your spirit, we pray that these words of Psalm 27 will, um, will sink deep into our heart, will show us your face and give us the strength we need for this week. In Jesus' name, amen.